Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin, and this is, we're doing a show today that we've talked about for a while, and it's about Liam Neeson, uh, <laughs> and about the complexity of Liam Neeson's career. I mean, there's a reason why, in getting ready for this show, I discovered a podcast called Me, My Parents, and Liam Neeson, which is like this guy and his parents just trying to figure out Liam Neeson's career and going movie by movie through it and trying to understand what's happening and why it's Liam Neeson and not somebody else. But the simple way to talk about it is in terms of a dualism between the early part of Liam Neeson's career, where he seemed to be the kind of actor who would get a lot of critical acclaim, would do high prestige projects, and would benefit accordingly. And then he became an action figure, an action hero anyway, late in life. (laughs) Maybe not an action figure. We're going to explain all of this to you today, so get ready. Hi. So we've been talking about doing this show for a while. And what this show is, I think, is the story of an actor with a very unusual career arc. And it's Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, you know, early in his career was doing a lot of pretty critically acclaimed work. He had kind of an interesting profile within the movie industry. And then something happened. And it isn't that he didn't become a bankable movie star, not necessarily, and in at least one very prominent case, quite the opposite. But he started to make a lot of movies that just didn't seem that much like his earlier career, and they tended to be action movies. They quite frequently involved somebody whose family was being menaced. They quite frequently involved somebody who was tragically widowed, which is actually the case in Liam Neeson's own life. And some of them just really didn't seem really up to Liam Neeson's standards, or for that matter, anybody else's. I just watched some of Black Light, which is one of the two Liam Neeson 2022 uh, films, and I am prepared to say that there's no way Liam Neeson or Aidan Quinn or anybody else with an ounce of self-respect should be in that movie, but, but that's the way things have gone. So why would that be? How is that happening? Why is it this sort of strange sine wave? Here to help us figure that out is David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic, and Nate Fisher, a writer and comedian. He co-hosts the podcast, A Closer Look. He wrote a piece for RogerEbert.com about the phenomenon of the January Neeson. So why don't we start there, Nate Fisher, explain what a January Neeson is. Yeah, totally. So The way that Hollywood likes to operate is when a movie makes a lot of money in a way that's surprising and unexpected, they pretty much just try to recreate that over and over again until the money supply runs out. And what happened was Liam Neeson found his way into a European-funded paranoia action movie in the film Taken, and somehow, despite it being released in the box office cemetery that is the month of January, it was a huge success. People found it quotable. They found it memorable. They found it interesting for a multitude of reasons. You know, the film's okay, but uh, for whatever reason, it was a huge success. And so for every year after that, for the most of the next decade, you could reliably count upon getting a Liam Neeson action movie where he's very angry and something has fallen him that is unfortunate 
and his family is all discombobulated every single January. And that has become what I have retroactively termed the genre of the January Neeson. <laughs> right. So there's a lot to be said about this. Although, so David, I'm sure you have a lot of different things to say, but let's just sort of pause with what Nate just said. I mean, to some degree, that is how Hollywood works. If something works once, do it again, then do it again, then do it again, do it until somebody stops you somehow from doing it. That's not all that unusual. But this seems like maybe a little bit more deeply worn a rut or groove in the earth of Hollywood, just the way this happens over and over again with this one actor. Well, Nate, I, with all with all respect, I would take issue. I think Taken is a pretty great movie for what it is. And granted, we're we're grading on the sort of meathead vigilante curve. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a film, you know, much better and also much leaner, much less kind of, I mean, it's a PG-13. It's not splattery. It's not kind of a wash in the same kind of sadism that you'll get in a Sylvester Stallone or a movie or any of these real low-rent sleazy genre movies. It was overseen by Luc Besson, directed by Pierre Morel, Frenchies who, you know, take a very civilized eye towards genre. So it was not your sort of gut bucket genre movie. And I think its success was well-deserved. The sequels were, well, Taken 3 was was not even a movie, it was a disgrace. But I think that people bonded with Liam Neeson in Taken for very, very good reason. I can't remember really since Bogart, and of course he never made those sorts of movies, but an action movie hero who had that kind of gravity, that kind of spiritual weight. You know, Liam Neeson played Michael Collins early in his career. And, and in some ways, he brings onto the screen not just his own tragedy, the, the loss of his wife, but the tragedy of his entire country. He has the demeanor sometimes of a hood, but who also has poetry and booze and dissipation and a sort of horror at what he is and what he has become. And even as he's walking through some of these movies. And, and indeed, Colin, they are terrible. Blacklight is really an unbelievably <laughs> terrible movie. You know, we don't we don't think of him as walking through because there's something very eloquent about his presence. And because also because you've raised the issue of Blacklight, note his co-star in that movie, Aidan Quinn. Now think about this. Have you seen the film Unknown? which is a pretty good film, a pretty good B film in which Liam Neeson forgets his identity and ends up in a, a life and death struggle with Aiden Quinn. This man showed up at my hotel last night claiming to be me. The police were called. I called the police, you son of a bitch. He checked himself out of a hospital. Seems he was in an accident. Professor. Professor? I don't know who this man is, but he has taken everything from me. You have to arrest him. Aiden Quinn, who still looked like kind of the dreamboat that he was as a juvenile, you know, sleek, blue eyed, for a while a leading man. Now look at him again in black light, which is little more than 10 years later. He looks like an old guy. He's got a gut on him. His face is saggy. Look at Liam Neeson. 
He looks exactly the same. <laughs> so, David, I want to pounce on one thing that you brought up, which uh, you use the word poetry. And so, you know, all of the ironies uh, and, and in a way, the kind of knife's edge that we're running our thumb down in this discussion of Liam Neeson can be summed up the following way. I remember sitting in the movie theater watching Schindler's List. And there's if you remember, there's the moment where he gives this speech that's almost direct to camera saying like how much things cost, how much his car cost, his suit cost, and how many lives, how many more lives he could have saved. There's been two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for At least one. He would have given me one. One more. One more person. And it's just an amazing piece of writing. And I'm just weeping copiously as he's delivering this kind of amazing statement. And so the irony is that's that's not even close to, be, to being the speech that Liam Neeson is going to be known for for the rest of recorded human history. That speech is the one we're about to play. I'm assuming I don't have to set this up, but there's like one person out there who hasn't watched Taken or something. But so, yes, the character's daughter has been kidnapped and he is talking to one of the kidnappers on the phone. And ultimately, here is what the character Brian Mills has to say to a kidnapper named Marco. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom... I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. All right. So the person who has thought, I think, the most deeply about this, of anybody that I'm aware of anyway, is the, the wonderful writer Stephen Marsh. He is a novelist and essayist. His most recent book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. In 2015, he wrote a piece for Esquire about that speech that we just heard from the movie Taken. So, you know, there's something about this speech. It's become iconic. I mean, it's kind of yeah. almost, you know, among sort of thriller-related speeches, it's right up there with Anthony Hopkins telling Clarice. You know, what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes you look like a robe a well-scrubbed hustling robe with a little taste good nutrition's given you some length of bone but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash are you agent starling you know, oh, I think it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. So, so make the case oh, that it's bigger than that. Well, it's the only speech I know of where they put the speech on the movie posters, right? I mean, in most movies, like, people think that the actors make up the words, right? It's an extremely rare case of the words mattering more than the images in a movie. And I honestly think, like, Liam Neeson's career basically after this speech was the guy who gives that speech in various different scenarios. <laughs> like, like it, the speech is, I am capable of great violence with ultimate justification, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, that's what we're going to the movies for, right? Like, somebody does some horrible, incredibly elastic, violent stuff with pure justification. I mean, that's like, like, like going and seeing Nazis shut up because they deserve it, right? And so you have, this, you have this sort of pure moral justification for violence as the content. Also, the skill set is really key. 
right? Like that's the, that the appeal is this is a hugely skilled human being. And that's the same thing behind the Bourne movies or James Bond or, you know, any number of movies, like a man who is essentially a weapon. Right. I would throw Die Hard in there to a certain degree. Yeah, for sure. But the difference is Bruce Willis, it's hard to imagine him delivering a speech like this. And by that, I guess I mean, and I think you mean, there's a certain music to this speech that, first of all, certain actors can do and maybe certain other actors can't, and a way in which this speech kind of delves deep into the history of speech making. So say some more about that. Well, the piece I wrote for Esquire compared it pretty clearly to some of the biggest speeches in the world. So like Winston Churchill's We'll Fight Them on the Beaches speech. We should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. And, you know, I have a dream speech by MLK. So like we're talking like, but I mean, it's kind of ridiculous and kind of unholy to compare them to these speeches of that import. Now, his performance of it, I mean, I think any classically trained actor could do a good job with that now. But Liam Neeson is a fully classically trained actor, and he does exactly the right thing with it, which you also see in the Winston Churchill and MLK speeches, where they just slow it way down. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I mean, they're talking at about a third the speed of normal speech. And that is also, you know, part of the rhetorical effect. But they have the same rhetorical structure, which is like, first of all, very particular things are mentioned at the same time, like beaches or like individual people in the in the MLK speech. And like he does the same thing with his daughter in this speech. And second of all, like things that will happen. I'm going to do that. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Good luck. So, yeah, it definitely has this weird echo of these great rhetorical masterpieces, if you will. And it seems to work, right? I mean, this seems to be the structure that plugs into our brain. Right. And in a way, it, it almost fits with what goes on with the actual set of physical skills that he's talking about, that he's capable of neutralizing almost an infinite number of potential assailants. He's also capable of turning into Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King in these incredibly compressed and stressed situations. I mean, he's giving this speech and he what you notice at that moment, I think I do remember this watching the movie for the first time, is how incredibly calm he seems. Well, I think that, you know, it's good to remember that it's a pretty ridiculous movie and the sequels are all ridiculous. <laughs> you don't and say. we're talking about like, and the speech gives him moral seriousness, right? He has a really good face for moral seriousness. You know, that like kind of half hangdog resting face that works so well with Liam Neeson. But like, I think what it actually gives him is just that sense of like deeper purpose that kind of gives you a kind of feeling like the action that you're watching 
as ridiculous as it is and ludicrous as it is, actually matters, right? And that's very appealing. That's what keeps people in seats. And there's also a way in which, and your piece highlights this, that this is somehow or other the way a speech becomes memorable, the way it becomes embedded in our consciousness, the way that, I mean, this is a trivialization of that, but if Tina Fey hasn't already written a really funny scene where, you know, John Hamm or somebody gives a similar speech, under, she's going to do that. And when she does it, we'll all know exactly what she's evoking, what she's riffing off of. And maybe you can say that a little bit more about this. Like, why... Why would this speech stick in our consciousness maybe the way, you know, 10 other speeches in comparable situations in similar kinds of movies simply would not? I mean, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Like, I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I'd just go write a bunch. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think it is very much that kind of that progression. Like there's a very definite rhythm to it. Very short sentences, like expansive, like the idea expands very naturally from itself. And it's very calm and it's very... It has, you know, what Aristotle called logos, like it makes sense on a continuous basis all the time. You know, I think that's part of it. I mean, it is very instantly parodable, but the thing that is really funny about it is though, even though it's been parodied so many times, when you watch it again, it really doesn't lose its power. You're really caught up in it yet again. It kind of goes back to, you know, all of us who took any kind of writing class in high school or college, we had some teacher who said, say what you're going to do and then do it, and then say that you did it. And this is like the ultimate say what you're going to do thing. Exactly. Brevity also is key here, right? Like, I mean, that's one of the things where it's like, he doesn't go on a big tangent. He just says exactly what he has to say. I mean, I really believe that the best speeches that I've ever seen, they know from the moment they stand up that everyone wants them to sit down again. They want it to be absolutely clear. Just say what you have to say. Right. And it definitely has that aspect to it. It just says exactly what it has to say. There's not a wasted syllable in that whole speech. It's very precise. And and then once it's done, it's done. We're going to take a little break here. And Nate and David are going to be back with us. You're also going to hear a little bit about kind of the demographics, the generalized demographics of this from Ben Lindbergh. There's all guys on this show. I don't know what, what happened, but it fits somehow with Liam Neeson. We'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
We're back with our all Liam Neeson, a full hour of Liam Neeson. We're talking right now to David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic. Nate Fisher is a writer and comedian, co-host the podcast, A Closer Look. He wrote a piece for RogerEbert.com about what's called the January Neeson, which sometimes, at least on one occasion, involves being married to January Jones, which is really complicated. So, Nate Fisher, there's another aspect to this, and you've already kind of alluded to it. But there's a way in which in these kind of taken and post-taken movies, it's not perfect. It's not perfectly universal. But there's a way in which he's kind of like maybe not a great family member. As you say, in Taken, he's like the most divorced person ever, I think is what you you said in your piece. Explain what you meant by that. Well, at the end of the day, we are have sort of wisened up as a movie going public. We don't want our action heroes and our stars to be uncomplicated, perfect hero guys. We want them to have problems because usually the problems make their stories a little bit more compelling because they make their winning a little bit harder. And everyone likes when the victory is a little bit harder earned and a little bit more truly achieved. He's got a negative energy. You know, my favorite of the January Neeson's is nonstop. Someone on this flight is threatening to kill a passenger unless $150 million is transferred in the next 18 minutes. Who knows about this? You and me. I say no way. It's bullshit. Any threat to an aircraft requires immediate landing. Yeah, all right. If there is a threat, Bill, I gotta ask you, how many have you had today? A threat's a threat. Okay. That movie is really, really economical in how it conveys little pieces of information both about the movie and about Neeson's character and that he's, you know, an alcoholic and that he's, you know, got all kinds of issues. There's a lot of really, really good darkness and sadness. And I think that it's just when the writers get the chance to write for an actor like Liam Neeson, who just, you know, maybe it's his Irish accent, but he just carries this sort of believable melancholy around them. That way they can get away with a lot more. They can, they can write him as a much more tragic figure you couldn't do this with tom cruise you couldn't do this with other actors like that no disrespect to tom cruise but you when you have somebody with tom cruise that's okay with me <laughs> yeah no 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 i'm sorry mission impossibles those movies are very very good they they hold up but you know um, maybe nate the point is Tom Cruise often doesn't seem plausibly connected to anybody. I mean, the idea that he would have a complicated relationship with a a wife or an ex-wife or a kid or a grandchild or something like that, it's a little less natural. But there is something about the way Neeson plays these parts where, yes, he's had these relationships, he hasn't handled them very well, and he seems just incredibly sad in a lot of these movies. I think that he's almost the, the sort of mirror inverse where it would seem ridiculous if he wasn't sad. You know, he's the type, he has the type of presence and sort of cadence that is a man where it's like, well, how could this guy ever be happy? You know, what, what, the, what the hell does this guy have to smile about? This guy has clearly been through some serious stuff. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the sketch that he did with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, where Lee, he, Liam Neeson plays himself and he walks into the office and he's like, I would like to try doing some comedy <laughs> and they're like ah oh, yes you're okay absolutely what would you like to do uh, let's do some let's do some improv you're a you're a hypochondriac and i'm your doctor and liam neeson he walks in and he goes i have contracted aids and i am dying like he has an in, incapable is <laughs> incapable of making a situation comedic he's got that magic touch about him where he's an instant downer 
Yeah. But David, I just want to stay with this point that Nate has made because it it just stays with us. I mean, by the time he does Blacklight, now he's an unreliable grandfather. I mean, part of the problem is that if you spent your entire life flying around sanctioning people, you know, just wiping people out and dealing with these horrible situations with extreme forms of violence, you just don't make it to the soccer games. You just don't. You're not there for class day or whatever it is. But it's now he's gotten so old he can't plausibly be a bad father anymore. He actually has to be an unreliable grandfather. Yeah. Yes. Are bad guys going to hurt you? Hurt me? Nah. Nothing's going to happen to me or you. Or mommy. Or mommy. Mommy! Hi, sweetie. Grandpa. He's got a lot to atone for. He looks like he, I mean, that's the thing too. Not only does he ca- have this melancholy, but he's he carries somehow a whiff of guilt. He's like, he looks like a man who sinned in his own eyes. He looks like a Catholic who just hasn't been to confession lately. But David, I, you know, we shouldn't skip over this part. You know, early on in his career, he's, he's Oscar Schindler. He's, he's in Husbands and Wives. He's in, you know, some pretty high prestige movies. And he seems like he's going to be kind of this just sort of interesting, well-reviewed actor. There isn't much of a clue of what he's going to become. But could you just say a little bit about how you saw his acting chops early on when you were reviewing him? I think he was a one. He's always had a wonderful presence. I think I said to you at some point, the only time I've ever used the phrase Hibernian gravitas was in a review of Liam Neeson. He's always carried that. But if you compare him to his countrymen like Colin Farrell, now Colin Farrell takes crazy chances as an actor. He really goes there. He shreds himself in front of the camera. Liam Neeson, there's always something that holds back a little bit about Liam Neeson. There's something he's better in stillness than he is in motion, although he moves very well. There's something kind of Frankenstein's monster-like about Neeson. So I don't wanna, I, I think you're right. I mean, he was very effective as Schindler. He was very effective as Michael Collins. They can jail us. They can shoot us. They can even conscript us. They can use us as cannon fodder in the Psalm. But, but, we have a weapon more powerful than any in the whole arsenal of their British Empire. And that weapon is our refusal. Our refusal to bow to any order but our own. Any institution but our own. He's, you know, I, I've rarely seen him give a bad performance, although I don't think his, he's great with accents. Um, he pretty much always sounds like he's sunk somewhere in the mid-Atlantic when he tries to do an American accent. But I, I don't know that he ever had the kind of spectacular range that allowed him to sort of take on roles. I mean, he's wonderful in silence recently. He's fascinating as a, as a kind of, as a guy who kind of, you think is a pillar of integrity, but who kind of drops the ball. Again, it's that feeling of, look of someone who sinned in his own eyes. But I don't know. I don't know that we, we've seen the Lincoln, you know, the Daniel Day-Lewis performance that, that Liam Neeson is capable of. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's there. You know, Nate, when you were talking before about the comedy sketch, I was also thinking about Love Actually, which isn't like a startling comic turn by Neeson. And in a way, it predicts 
I mean, he's also widowed in that. I mean, that whole movie in some ways is about sad people trying to be happy, and some of them succeed and some of them don't. But it, it is, you're right, and the sketch is right, that for a guy like this, he really hasn't been able to do comedy, just kind of happy comedy. No, and, and he's, he's very much like when you have a guy with that kind of presence, you do get shoehorned into seriousness, I think. And honestly, the only... This is going to be kind of an out there comparison, but I think the reason that he took so well to these like cheapy action movie type of stuff that I think the only really comparison point that I have as another actor or screen presence is Clint Eastwood. I think this is that same kind of like, you know, stoic, big guy, sad hero that we root for because of his latent darkness. Clint was really good at playing off that over the course of his career as he became a director and as he got older. Like, that became sort of the only subject matter of his movies. I think it's better to... It, you can't think of Liam Neeson in the Colin Farrell vein or the Daniel Day-Lewis vein. I, I see him more... Uh, Neeson as more of a continuation of the Clint line as, like, the action, the action hero that we like because he reminds us of our saddest parts of ourselves. Right. I'm getting peppered with a whole bunch of things like the Lego movie and 10 million yeah, ways I mean, to die. Also, yes. Million ways to die in the West. I mean, he's very funny at that in that, but he's never, it's a shame. He's never done a performance like the one that one of my two favorite Eastwood performances is in Bronco Billy, where he's able to make fun of his own machismo in a way and be very vulnerable and sweet. Pick him up or I'll plug you. I ought to have the whole bunch of you strung up for cattle rustling. We just wanted to talk to Bronco Billy. All right, turn around nice and easy. Are you really the fastest guy in the West? Ain't nobody faster than Bronco Billy. And I don't think Neeson has played that kind of sort of genre, ironic genre role. And that may be in his future. Don't forget the guy is still, you know, incredibly hale and hearty. And he has five films coming up in the next year, not just January, but probably every other month. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to his inevitable uh, movie where he's, uh, his partner is an orangutan. <laughs> Neeson tends to be working, I think, for the same companies that know they can pre-finance these movies with sales to cable and that they will make, they're not big budget movies, they'll make their money back. I don't know how big his nut is that he, he needs to keep churning out these films, but apparently he likes to work. But I don't know what the story is personally, what he thinks about what he's doing. As I say, he radiates integrity on the screen. Whether or not his movies have that is a, is an open question. Well, let's talk a little bit about the age thing. You know, he didn't really start snapping people's necks until he was in his 50s. It's usually the other way around, right? You snap necks in your 30s and 40s, you know, and then you start taking some of these more thoughtful roles as you enter your golden years. Except maybe that's not how it works. Ben Lindbergh, who's really good at kind of looking into the specifics of things as opposed to me with my back of envelope calcul calculations about life and culture, is joining us uh, for The Ringer. He wrote The Golden Age of the Aging Actor. So, Ben, based on your research, your statistical analysis, your saber metrics uh, of, of acting, <laughs> uh, you would make the argument that, you know, Liam Neeson isn't necessarily that big an outlier. No, Neeson is not alone. He was among the aging actors and specifically the aging male action stars who inspired me to start this article. It was sort of time to the release of Top Gun Maverick. And I thought, wow, aging male action stars, this is a trend. 
But once I started looking into it with my co-author, Rob Arthur, we found that it's really kind of an across the board trend. It's not just men. It's not just action movies or even movies at all. It's it's TV shows, too. There has been a, a general aging of the top listed actors on various projects really over the past 20 years or so. And, and especially over the past 10 to 15 the average age of the actors who have appeared toward the top of the bill in films and also in TV projects has risen significantly. So in the late 20th century, you had actors who tended to be typically in their late 30s was the median age. And now it's more like the mid 40s or even climbing toward 50. So there really has just been a, a general aging of actors. And when you're saying what you just said, what you're also effectively saying is it's the same people. The, it is, the, the, yes. re, the reason that, you know, the age of the leading man and to a certain degree woman is on average older is because they haven't changed out those jobs. Right. Liam Neeson gets a year older every year <laughs> and they keep putting him in movies. So that is part of it. I think there are several factors that explain it. It's hard to pinpoint any one just because there are several that seem to be contributing toward this trend. But I think one big part of it is that there's just generally been a, a fracturing of culture. People talk about the decline of the monoculture. We're all in our own media silos. We're all watching our own things. There are fewer stars who are kind of crossover mainstream stars. Everyone agrees on their household names. And Liam Neeson and Tom Cruise and Adam Sandler and people like this who were stars in the 80s or 90s, they date from an earlier era. And so they have achieved a kind of cultural penetration that is hard for younger folks to achieve today, where certain segments of the audience might know them and others might say, who? <laughs> so you have someone like Liam Neeson and he can still sell a movie. He can still headline a movie because he was famous before we went all off into our own little corners where we only know certain people and certain celebrities. And so you can keep building movies around these kinds of stars but of course, they get older and older every year. So that contributes to the trend. And I think relatedly, there have been many more sequels and reboots and prequels and just sort of generally mining existing IP, things that people have some awareness of and fondness for. And again, if you have sequel after sequel and Tom Cruise appears almost exclusively in sequels and reboots and such today then again, those stars are going to keep getting older because it's the same stars appearing in movies or releases in the same franchises. So, Ben, is this going to turn out to be another thing the Eagles were wrong about? They said uh, <laughs> there's a new kid in town. You know, that whole song <laughs> is about how at a certain age you start getting pushed aside because you've been around too long. You're still around. You know, who wants you? There's somebody else who's younger. And that's kind of part of the argument you're making is that that's not happening. But it does seem as though... It's harder to name the successors or the apparent successors to some of these positions in show business because we don't really know them. Well, the Eagles are still touring and selling out shows, right? <laughs> so <laughs> they haven't left either. Good and really, point. It's, point. It's, it's kind of a, across the culture, right? It, it's not just older actors. It, it is older musicians. People like Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones and Elton John are still selling out tickets. You have old tennis players and Tom Brady and, and then the NFL. You know, there are a lot of older people who are achieving things in their fields or, frankly, for better or worse, politicians, right? Look at the average age of the government right now. So this is not purely just culture or even movies or TV. 
I think one thing you could say is that maybe we're looking at this from the perspective of people who remember the the pre-monoculture times or we're sort of nostalgic for the old age of the movie star. That's sort of a, a theme of Top Gun Maverick is just like Tom Cruise. He's the last one standing, right? And he's being phased out and there's a newer breed coming along. I think part of it, though, is that stardom just looks a little different for younger generations. They might not be interested in the sort of stardom that we are talking about here. It might not be available to them, but they also might not be aspiring to it because they might be YouTube stars. They might be TikTok stars. It might not be quite as broad a a cultural penetration across all age groups, but within one generation it is. And also, I think uh, another positive of this trend is that it's partly a result of inclusive casting, right? You're having older actors, especially older women who are getting cast in parts that in an earlier period they might not have. Part of that is also the aging of the audience and the American population in general. We're all kind of getting older, right? Just the country as a whole has gotten significantly older. And so maybe audiences want to see people who reflect their own interests, their own experiences, or their own memories. And of course, you have cosmetic surgery. You have people being in better shape taking better care of themselves, et cetera. So you have people in their 50s or 60s who don't necessarily look like people in their 50s or 60s used to look. (laughs) So maybe they can convincingly play certain parts that people their age might not have been able to, or just the audiences would not have been as receptive to people their age playing those parts. Right. Just to go back to Top Gun, Top Gun in a way, kind of in its fictional context, is essentially making the same argument, right? Because the pretext of the movie is that Tom Cruise's character needs to be brought in to tutor, to teach Mm -hmm. this new generation of young studs because obviously his time has passed. But And this isn't a huge spoiler, but at a certain point he goes, no, you know what? I'm still the only guy who can do this. I have to go do this. (laughs) You guys can follow along and do some other stuff, but I'm the one who has to do this. Right. Yes, the the big theme of the movie, you know, as as Maverick says to his students, time is your greatest enemy. And he's being told that by everyone in the movie. He's headed for extinction. He's over the hill. He's a relic. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. At the end of the movie, of course, he's the only one who can go out there and not just teach, but do. He's still the best because he's Tom Cruise and he's the star of Top Gun Maverick. But really, it's also kind of true in real life because look at how much money that movie made, right? Tom Cruise is the one who can headline an action movie like that and actually sell it based partly on the power of the personality of Tom Cruise. He is still a big draw, even at 60 years old. So that's just one piece of this puzzle, the complicated puzzle that is the sine curve of Liam Neeson's career. We'll be back with more. We are back. It is time for me to say some thank yous. And I'm going to be honest with you. We sort of put this together uh, in the way that uh, Jonathan McNichol, Mr. McPants, likes to work at times, which is we're recording it at different times, and then he likes to edit stuff together. So I know for a fact that Gina Matruda is right now the technical producer of this. 
it's conceivable. I think that Cat Pastor was the technical producer for at least some of it. The whole thing is the brainchild of Jonathan McPants. So thanks to all of you for doing this. And we have some time left with these two excellent guests. And so with us right now is David Edelstein. He is America's greatest living film critic. And also with us, Nate Fisher, writer and comedian, hosted the podcast A Closer Look. So... You know, in the middle of all this, this kind of taken and post-taken era, Nate, you know, there there are some anomalies. I mean, one of them is the Scorsese movie Silence. We can talk about that if we want to. But, you know, one that you also focused in on a little bit in your piece. And, you know, there's sort of a hallucinatory quality to some of these movies. Like, I saw this movie when it came out, but I sort of, I'm not sure that I'm maybe making stuff up. But there's a movie called it's called The Gray, right? It's the one with the, the wolves. Gray, yeah. The gray. So yeah. and and so here's the stuff that I want to make sure is not a hallucination. Is there like a poem like that he keeps reciting all the way through the movie? And am I making this up, or is it at the end of the movie is he ready to fight wolves with like little alcohol mini bottles from a plane? No, the yeah the the <laughs> uh, the those little bottles he does tie them to his his hand to make uh, I guess Wolverine claws and do battle with a wolf that has been stalking him over the course of several nights. Yeah. So, I, David, go ahead. What, what, no, no, what can we say that about that movie? Extraordinary. Well, he's extraordinarily good in that movie. That's a survival movie. And we just watch as one actor after another. They're pretty good actors in that movie, get kind of taken down by wolves. And then finally it's just, you know, God's loneliest man versus, you know, a whole pack of wolves. But what's interesting about that movie is that, do you remember the, the first scenes of that movie? He actually tries to commit suicide. We end up being on the side of somebody who has, you know, from the very beginning of the movie told us that he's disgusted by himself, he's disgusted by life, he's disgusted by the world. So in a way, his stand at the end against the wolves is makes him, I hate using this term, but he he's an existential hero. He is fighting for no other reason than because it is our job to remain standing as long as we can and to fight as hard as we can, even if we don't believe in what we are fighting for. Once more into the fray. Into the last good fight I'll ever know. Live and die on this day. Live. And I think that that's, it's something that you can accept from, from Liam Neeson. There's no family he wants to go back to. There's, no, there's nothing he wants to, there's no goal at the end, except just to, to represent us, Homo sapien, against the universe. Yeah, just to bounce off of that, like another thing that, that is like what we want to get out of that character, even though the character himself aspires to die and doesn't want to be a part of our world, is when we walk into one of these movies, what do we want to see? We want to see his particular set of skills we want we want we expect as an audience show us the skills show us the stuff you're good at so we're waiting 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 for him to come and 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 show off what he knows how to do so when we set up in the beginning of the movie that this guy is a guy that wants to die we're waiting for him to be like all right all right we bought a ticket to see you you know ball out to see you you know kick some butt 
So we're waiting for those skills to come out. And I think that that's what, you know, there's, there's a romantic notion of like him being the, the hero that's fighting for the, the act of living itself. But also there's the bottom line to worry about. And it's when is this guy going to show us what he's skilled at? So that's a problem for him and for filmmakers who work with him, because if you cast now, if you cast Liam Neeson in a role in which he's playing a somewhat impotent man, a passive man, then you're going to have a problem with audiences who expect him to have the particular skill set. But it does, it can work brilliantly in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the sort of omnibus Coen Brothers movie. It's really interesting that, you know, he plays a man who, he plays a kind of Judas figure. He is an anti-hero in the end. And it's extraordinarily effective because we don't expect that from Liam Neeson. Sure, my father wore it as a youth. In the grand old days of yore, and on the twelfth, I love to wear the sash me father wore. Yes, the sash me father wore. We're going to return. You know, I mean, Nate, I think another thing that I'm forced to concede about a lot of these movies is that that they may not represent artistic triumphs. But so I'll just tell a quick story because it so closely mirrors the form and function of the movie. So I was on a plane and I was watching The Commuter, which is the wrong one to watch. I should watch the one on the plane where he's on a plane. (laughs) Nonstop. So but they're both this kind of the same movie, right? People are being transported in something made out of metal and bad things are happening. And I'm on the plane and I'm watching The Commuter and I'm realizing that the arrival of the plane at the gate is going to be a very nip and tuck thing with the end of this movie. And it's like the only time I've ever been in an airplane begging them to taxi a little bit slower. Let's not quite get to the gate yet. And I missed it. I mean, I really missed the, the I missed it. I saw everything about the movie except how it ends. There's some kind of reveal there. I don't know what it is. But I had to admit, like, I really wanted to know. I didn't want to miss the ending of this movie. And and one thing about this, I'm sure you both have stuff to say about it, but, Nate, you know, a lot of these movies, I mean, not only is he kind of compelling in them, but even if they're not great movies, they kind of they'll, they'll get you through a two-hour plane flight pretty well, you know, engrossed. Yeah, I, I think what drew me to these these movies in the first place is the fact that they are, to use the cliche, they're just well-crafted genre vehicles. See, I like Westerns. They don't make Westerns anymore, but I miss Westerns. And this gives me a little bit of that sort of that feeling that I miss from Westerns, these types of movies where it's heroes forced to reveal their skills against a world governed by lawlessness and death. I think that we're not giving them enough credit. I think that especially in the movie going landscape like today, like the ability for a movie to concoct, it's like, it's, it's like dissembling of like little pieces of information over time. You know, you let it, you being let in on certain amounts of things, like little bits of the story here and there is something of a lost art form. And I think that particularly so, what I like about The Commuter, Nonstop, and Unknown, those are all collaborations with the same director, uh, Jaume Colette-Serra. I apologize for butchering his Spanish name. But Colette-Serra is a very, very technically proficient filmmaker. And I don't mean that as a dig against his artistic inclinations or whatever. I mean that he's like really one of the greats of like being able to choreograph a scene, disseminate information over a sequence of shots. And I think that's why 
he worked so well with with Liam Neeson in these kinds of movies because they have one single-minded goal and that's get you through the plane ride and they do it better than just about anybody else I mean he really like they are masters of like burying little tiny nuggets of things to discover here and there and that's and that's one of those just movie going tricks that's how they how they trick you into loving movies it's just like how can I uncover these little pieces of information? And that's just what drew me to them in the first place. I agree with you about his directing. He's working below his gifts, though. Yeah. Uh, both of them are. But those films that you mentioned are are very good. And um, and I I could even make a case for Memory, the last film that that Liam Neeson did, where he actually had a co lead in Guy Pierce. And I can I can make something of a case for Ice Road. I can't make any case for Black Light. It's hard to make a case for Cold Pursuit, which is actually kind of campy. I've killed three of his guys. What did you do with the bodies? Wrapped them in chicken wire, threw them on the gorge. Chicken wire? Hmm. To let the fish get at them, to eat the flesh off the bones, so the bodies don't fill with gas and rice. They stay at the bottom. <laughs> Where'd you learn that? I read it in a crime novel. <laughs> but well, we haven't talked about, you know, I've, I've read all of Lawrence Block's Matthew Scudder novels, and I was very excited when Scott Frank directed him as Matthew Scudder in A Walk Among the Tombstones, but it's very disappointing. He's not the Matt Scudder of the novel, he's Liam Neeson. He's, he's Liam Neeson as a New York detective. And that's the problem. He's not, you know, he doesn't transform in these movies. He's always the same guy. And if you accept that, if it works for the material, great. If it doesn't, then he's not going to, you know, he's a little rusty as an actor. He's not going to have a lot of other resources to fall back on. Right, David. And that brings up Philip Marlowe, right? In a film called Marlowe, directed by Neil Jordan, who's a really good director. I mean, well, again, you've got some interesting Neil pieces. Jordan, if it's Neil Jordan, all bets are off. You know, it could be great. Mm -hmm. But I don't, he's not Philip, I mean, he's going to be... Liam Neeson as Philip Marlowe. He's not going to. Okay, I can't. I shouldn't prejudice anything. Okay, because that's you know that 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 way lies brain death. But I'm sorry, he's going to be Liam Neeson as Philip Marlowe. Well, Elliot Gold was Elliot Gold as Philip Marlowe, so you know. Well, I was about that was to say radically that's... reconceived. That was a radically reconceived. <laughs> and if Neil Jordan is radically re now, the good thing about Neil Jordan is, I mean, he's an he's also an Irishman and has worked with Liam Neeson before, and it's possible. They will bring something personal. Neil Jordan is incapable of making just, you know, a dull formula movie. So although he's up there in years now, but, you know, I'm, I'm excited about that. But at the same time, I don't want to get my hopes too high. Los Angeles, a city of angels, more like the city of dirty little secrets. People pay me to look into the activities of its finest citizens. I'm a private detective. The name is Philip Marlowe. So, yeah, I don't know, Nate. It sounds like if, if I tell you there's a Liam Neeson, new Liam Neeson movie opening around the corner, you're probably going to walk around the corner. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I've i long since abandoned the, the belief that actors need to become the character that, that we need them to be. We were just talking about how actors who were famous in their 30s and 40s are the same stars in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think that that's something that, well, we, we got who we got at this point. There's a certain pessimism about movies. There's a sense that movies are declining. There's a sense that they're losing their, 
their spot in the cultural limelight. And we are sort of stuck with the old intellectual property, the old stars that we used to have for as long as we continue to have them. And there are some comforts to be found in that. At the end of the day, I'll just be happy to see the old guys again. So I'll, I'll see him. I'll see him where I can see him. All right. We're going to stop there. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic. Nate Fisher, writer and comedian, co-host of the podcast, A Closer Look. Thanks to everybody who helped out on this show, especially Jonathan McPants. And we'll be back with another show next week. All the rain.